afternoon, everybody. So this is going to be part two of the presentation on moral disengagement. And hopefully uh, several of you were able to make part one, but um, we're going to do a brief, brief overview, very brief overview of lecture one uh, and revisit the definition of moral disengagement. Today, the big thing that we're going to be doing is kind of getting into the whole, the, the heart of it. Uh, we're going to be defining the terms or looking specifically at the rationalizations that occur uh, that allow for moral disengagement to take place. And as we're doing that, uh, really kind of pay attention and, and see if you can identify, because I give you examples, see if you can identify the rationalization because at the end of the presentation, I've pulled some stuff from some some national cases that were relatively prominent, and uh, I'm going to have you look at, at statements from these killers' manifestos and see if you can identify these specific moral disengagement uh, elements. All right. So last time, really, we spent a lot of time talking about the multiple influences on behavior. I kind of mentioned that you know most of the time when we see people, we think of internal qualities, right? We talk to that as essentialism. So we think of people as good or bad, as being friendly or not friendly, criminal, not criminal, and those sort of internal qualities have, have a lot of implications for their behavior moving forward. And we sort of judge people based on that. Really what it, what it seems like, what the literature would suggest is that there's a lot of different influences on behavior. Cultural influences, biological, environmental, psychological, social, and really what we're going to look at here in terms of moral disengagement is psychological influences. So I sort of made this myself just to just kind of separate it out, make it a little bit easier. But when we're talking about psychological influences, we're talking about normal cognitive functioning or normal mental functioning, and then also uh, mental health. What, what is your mental health? So last time, if you recall, you know, what I said is that, you know, certainly people with mental health problems have kind of compelling behaviors and, and certainly influences their behavior. But at the same time, they have these normal cognitive factors or normal mental processes that are going on at the same time. And, and, you know, really, those, those are what sort of drive our behavior, you know, from the psychological realm. And, and so I, I put up there, you know, psychopathology is an abnormal condition, right? And when it, when it is present, it typically flavors the behavior. That's kind of a weird way of putting it. But it, it sort of governs the behavioral expression or what it might look like. Um, and the, it's the general cognitive factors that really determine those types of things. So I just, I was looking at this, I had a good example a long time ago. Um, I used to work in an inpatient psychiatric facility, and a lot of times we'd have folks on there with acute schizophrenia. So, of course, schizophrenia is very dramatic, you know, mental illness, and, and it presents, you know, you, you kind of look and you're like, okay, that's clearly an issue. And, and so one of the patients on there, on the unit once, I was wondering, you know, he was down at the end of the hall facing a tree, a little ficus that was at the end of the hall. And he was just sitting there talking 
to the tree and I was like walking down there, hey, what's up? You know, and he says, Oh, you know, I'm trying to get my pizza from this tree. I mean, he didn't say I'm trying to get this pizza from it, but he's I'm trying to get this pizza. He won't give me the pizza, he won't give me my change. He's being a total jerk, you know, and I'm like, it's ficus. <laughs> so so the schizophrenia in that sense, when you look at what does what does it mean if something flavors a behavior versus something determines a behavior? So look at the cognitive factors. The first one I have up there is their what are their knowledge base? What does the person know how to do? So this gentleman knows how to order a pizza. He has what you know what psychologists call uh, scripts. He he knows how people interact with pizza delivery people. You order a pizza, you receive a pizza you give money, you get change. All that stuff he knows how to do. So that drives the behavior. Of course, you lay some schizophrenia on top of that and things are just kind of haywire, right? So it's not the schizophrenia that's driving the behavior, it's his regular cognitive, those normal cognitive processes that are driving it, that are causing him to do what he's doing. And it's the schizophrenia that makes it look really odd, really aberrant. So that's kind of what I'm talking about. Now the interesting thing is these normal, these normal cognitive factors, attitudes, beliefs uh, in particular, can become so distorted that they appear pathological. So in other words, people will do things because of a belief that they have, but if you're not part of that genre, right? If you're not part of that culture, it can appear pathological. So here in the Southwest, a very good example uh, would be if somebody, for example, uh, is, you know, Native American, then they work with uh, a medicine man, shaman healer, or uh, Latin American, and they work with culinderas, you know, so like one of the things that a culindera will do is you know, take an egg and, and wave it over the person, and, and that is a form of treatment. And if you're, I don't know, from Norway or something, or probably anywhere in the United States that's not really specific in the Southwest, that's familiar with that cultural influence, you know, you're going to see somebody waving an egg at somebody who has an illness or a pain, and you're going to be like, okay, you know, what, <laughs> what exactly is that, you know? And, and so our attitudes can appear uh, pathological. You see this a lot in, in, in spree killers and mass shooters. You see it a lot because it's in, it's in the media a lot, but they, they have belief systems that are driving this behavior. And of course, everybody's going, well, somebody has to be extremely pathological in order to get, engage in this type of behavior. But then when you look at it, you're like, wow, you know, they just have a very unusual belief system. Um, so that's kind of where that is. Okay, okay. sorry, I went the wrong way. Um, all right, so redefining moral, moral disengagement. So moral disengagement is a psychological process that distorts our moral compass, right? So the last time, you know, what I had said is that we all grow up um, and we are instilled with various, you know, moral values or ethical beliefs, whether they be religious or secular, and we strive to we strive to maintain those. 
you know, but it's easy um, through this process of moral disengagement to sort of give ourselves permission to allow ourselves to engage in behaviors that we might not otherwise engage in um, and still feel okay about ourselves, you know, and, and so that's how you end up with, you know, people um, who like one of the studies we referenced last time was the Stanford prison study. You know, you end up with college students. Some are playing the role as, as COs, some are playing the role as, as inmates and they're just some normal college students. Um, and then suddenly, you know, they're, they're, you know, screaming at each other and punishing each other and locking the inmates in closets and withholding food and engaging in all kinds of behaviors. Um, that's how you get these kind of Abu Ghraib situations. You know, you have people who are, you know, military, military police or military COs and, and suddenly, you know, it's revealed that they're taking pictures of, you know, pretty extreme prisoner abuse. But presumably, they still feel good about it. They feel like they're doing, you know, things that are reasonable. So the, the, the research on moral disengagement is kind of interesting. So it, it suggests that moral disengagement can be thought of as, as a stable cognitive orientation. That means sort of like a personality characteristic. Some people tend this way much more than other people. And it can also be something that's triggered by contextual factors. So again, last time, you know, one of the things that I talked about uh, in the Stanford Prison Studies, a good example, is that these contextual factors, the things that are going on in our environment, have a significant influence on our behavior, right? And so um, sometimes we will behave in ways that are different than we would normally behave just because of the setting. Uh, real quick example, there's a, there's a famous study of Catholic priests, or actually I should say Catholic seminary students. This was conducted, I believe, back in the mid-50s, um, where basically uh, what happened is that they were on the seminary campus and they told the seminary students, hey, you have to go give a lecture on Deuteronomy, you know, something like that. And, and it's on the other side of campus. And the only thing they varied is the amount of time before the lecture. They're like, you've got five minutes, and it's like a four-minute walk over to the lecture hall, or you've got an hour. And so the, the seminary student goes wandering off to go do the lecture, and at the building where they're supposed to give the lecture, there is somebody laying up against a wall moaning, laying on the ground up against the wall moaning. Well, the seminary students who were given five minutes, hey, you gotta go give a lecture on Deuteronomy, you got five minutes to get over there. Almost all of them just walked right past the person. Some of them even stepped over them. You know, this guy laying in a hallway moaning, you know, on the ground, you know. But the ones who had an hour, almost 100%, stopped and say, hey, are you okay, right? So that's an example of contextual. Now, you know, presumably these seminary students were pretty on top of their moral behavior and they believe ethically, you know, hope so. Um, and, and so that's kind of the power of, of contextual variables. And, and what's important is that even though the tendency to moral disen morally disengage can be 
in, in a way thought of as a personality characteristic, it's changeable over time, depending on the context, like I was just talking about. So you can have people who would normally not morally disengage, that it would be harder to make them do so, but you can put them in the right context and they are as vulnerable as others, right? So, right, like somebody like who is, who is typically somebody who's older and somebody who has a very strong commitment to their moral and ethical belief system, those people are, it's much harder to get them to morally disengage than it would be, you know, somebody who's younger and, you know, is morally flexible. <laughs> uh, they, and, and so it doesn't take a lot, right? They may just do it just because that's what they want. That's, that's what they do uh, because that's their um, tendency. Uh, so it can change over time. Of course, the good, good news is about that is that this is something that's malleable through training, right? You can learn to identify these things in yourself and others, and you can teach people not to engage in that kind of behavior. All right, so let's start looking at what is what does the research say that that moral disengagement is associated with? So people with this predisposition or people who are uh, morally disengaged, it's associated with high rates of criminal behavior, higher rates of aggression, um, bullying, general unethical behavior, workplace misconduct, uh, increased ability to dehumanize others, which is also associated with much higher rates of violence, and then, of course, uh, a greater likelihood of endorsing violence towards others. Now, um, you know, one of the things is, is that uh, it, it, it plays sort of, the, the way it works is that moral disengagement plays a moderating, it's a moderating variable between somebody's thought process and the criminal behavior. So in other words, um, in situations they may not otherwise engage in criminal behavior, but if they morally disengage, if they're going through using these rationalizations, it allows them to engage in criminal behavior, even though they're not normally a criminal. Um, so, uh, and then this is sort of uh, part of the impetus for doing this training and, and why I say this is sort of also training that is self-care is research has shown simply telling people about the process of moral disengagement makes them less likely to disengage. So you just know about it. And, and so, and it makes sense, right? Because it's sort of like a red flag. If you don't know what to look for, then what are you going to look for? How do you, how do you recognize these things occurring in yourself and others? All right. Okay, so how do we engage? How do we engage morally and ethically? Uh, I've got all the answers up there on the slide, but I mean, does, does anybody, I mean, what is, what is people's impression? How do we behave morally or ethically? Thoughts from the network? Thoughts from the network, exactly. So, I mean, we really t tend to think of it more in terms of internal qualities, right? I'm a good person or I'm a this person, I'm a Catholic, I'm a whatever, and, and so this is why I behave the way I do. 
because I hold to these standards. That's not actually what it appears to. And, and you know, you just look at the world around you and look at all the things that occur, and this can start to make sense. Basically, we have our own, our moral, our ethical principles that we strive to abide by, right? And certain people are better at it than others. And so, in a sense, if we have a decision to make about doing something that's that's right or something that's wrong, we reference our moral, ethical belief system, and I put here, we aim center mass, right? We aim our behavior in that direction and try and hit, right? We try and do what we intend to do as a moral, ethical person, you know? And a lot of times, of course, that, that works out pretty well. And so we're able to, to do that, you know? Um, but it, any of you fired, yes? Do we also reference past experiences? We do. That's that in, especially in, in kind of ambiguous situations where we're not sure what the right answer is. We'll also reference what we've done before in similar situations or what we've seen other people do. And, and if there was a, a good outcome or at least a neutral outcome, we're more likely to adopt that. Uh, and so, yeah, that's one of the ways that our own behavior influences our behavior. Um, but any of you who ever fired uh, long distance, I don't know, back in the day I was Marine Corps uh, infantry guy and we used to have to qualify, uh, I think the, the furthest we was like uh, 600 meters, 600 meter line. Um, you know, you got your little M16 there and you have to apply the windage. You guys know what I'm talking about, right? And so if, you know, you're using the steel sights, if the windage gun stuff, gun goes up, <laughs> if, if the windage is wrong, you will absolutely say, I am totally aiming center mass. But if your windage is off, you know, this can be uh, an old Marine Corps term, Maggie's drawers. Anybody familiar with Maggie's drawers? Maggie, that's that's a different we'll do a different lecture on Maggie's drawers later <laughs> so so I mean so I mean we intend to hit the target where we're aiming but we can miss it right and and so that you can kind of think of moral disengagement in that way too people when they are morally disengaged they can be convinced absolutely that they're doing the right thing. Some, sometimes the patriotic thing, but their windage is all wrong. And so the, what keeps us to, to motivated to stay on target is both external pressures and internal pressures. So you guys are all external pressures, right? Everybody's a law enforcement officer, external pressure. That's one of those things. We, we, wanna, we wanna obey the law because we don't wanna go to jail, right? But there's other things like familial expectations, social conventions, organizational regulations, all the things that are outside of us that kind of keep our behavior in line. Now, importantly for moral disengagement are these internal pressures. These are psychological pressures that, that personally make me motivated to behave in, in a good manner. So our goals, our desires, and our emotional reactions to our own behavior, right? So when we do things, we, we kind of also at the same time observe ourselves doing those things, and then we form judgments about the things that we've just done. And we say, that was awesome, or that was terrible, or whatever we say. And, 
And that's how we kind of keep ourselves in line. Now, Bandura, who, who's the guy who, who's the man on moral disengagement, uh, not that he does it a lot, he came up with the theory. Um, he, he came up with this term moral self-sanctions. That's what he talks about when he talks about the reactions that we have to ourselves uh, that keep us in line is if we do something, excuse me, if we do something wrong that, that, that violates our, our moral or ethical belief system, we apply punishment to ourselves. We punish ourselves through feelings of disappointment or feelings of guilt or feelings of shame. And, and that's the thing, those, those moral self-sanctions are the things that keep us from doing the right, or that keep us doing the right thing when nobody else is looking. Because we don't want to, we don't want to feel bad about ourselves, right? We don't want to prefer to feel good about ourselves. And so uh, we want to avoid that pain. Now, moral disengagement allows us to have our cake and eat it too. We can behave badly and feel good about ourselves. And so I'm going to teach you how to do that. <laughs> yes. Yes. Okay. Uh, okay. So can anybody here identify the apparent misspelling on this slide and tell me why it's spelled the way it is? I can barely spell my name right. So I will not. <laughs> Minimizing? Yes, that's one. Do you know why it's spelled that way? So this registered. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> These were written by. Uh, this was written by Bandura is a Canadian psychologist, and so they use Canadians. They use, they use that. So yeah, but but basically, this is this is sort of the overall process of moral engagement. Now, the black, the black and white, the boxes, those are the specific kinds of rationalizations that we're getting ready to get into and define. Now, the rationalizations operate at three, in three different levels, right? They can either operate at the level of the victim of our bad behavior. They can operate on the level of the effect. So what is the outcome? We can distort that or they can operate at the level of conduct, right? This normally bad conduct is not, not really that bad. It's really not. Um, and so that's kind of what we're saying now. Okay. So there are any questions up to this point? Because this is just the big, broad overview. All right. So the, is that the chat thing just? Whoa, bit. Okay. <laughs> I know that certain populations are educated specifically on how to morally disengage. If let's say morally questionable behaviors need to be accomplished by that group in order to be effective at their tasks and is usually justified as externally uh, as for the greater good, is morally disengaging purposefully in that regard and telling ourselves it was necessary just moral disengagement being used to morally disengage. Okay, that is a fantastic question. It's, it's actually, it's a very interesting question. Uh, in, the, in the context of law enforcement, it's an interesting question, but also in the context of the military, it becomes a very pertinent question 
because you have to be able to do that, right? If you're going to send soldiers into uh, combat, they need to be able to kill people, blow people up, and do things like that. And and they can't they can't then think of themselves as murderers, right? That doesn't that doesn't suit them, you know. But of course, the interesting thing is becomes about context, right? So if you're on one side of the conflict, you know, there, there was a cartoon I saw. Anyways, if you're on one side of the conflict and you're like, you know, uh, God has our back, we are doing the right thing. Well, the people on the other side of the conflict are not saying, hey, we're horrible, terrible people and deserve to be wiped off the face of the earth. No, everybody on both sides is using this kind of moral disengagement. And it, and it is still moral disengagement because it's, it's doing things that you normally wouldn't do. Both sides are thinking, I'm a good person. I don't believe in, so let's say, for instance, let's say war between two biblical societies, right? Who both follow the Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, right? Boom, it's right there. And, and they both need to find a way around that. And they have very sophisticated ways around that too. And, and that's, it's not, to, it's not a good or a bad thing. It is what it is, right? We all have to, it's important psychologically for us to feel good about ourselves. We do this stuff all the time, right? A good example is downward comparisons. This is a, this is a normal psychological process that, that denotes healthy psychological functioning if it's not taken to an extreme. So downward comparisons is when you look around and, and say things like, I am better looking than that schmo over there, you know, or you, you look down on other people, right? We pride ourselves on not being judgmental and everything like that. And, and certainly, you know, you shouldn't be, but absolutely you should be, you know, somewhat judgmental. You should think of yourself as being a little bit better than a lot of the people around you. You know, of course, we can look up too and say, hey, I'd like to kind of be like that person. But psychologically, you're really in trouble if you look up all the time and say, I'm not that, I'm not that, I don't have that, right? That's, that's not a good place. So, yeah, I mean, moral disengagement in certain contexts, it's, it's, neither, it's neither good or bad, per se. I ho hopefully that makes sense, right? It is a process, right? And sometimes it can be a necessary process. Um, What's dangerous, especially, and I'm sorry, I'll just go back to the combat setting. So last time I briefly mentioned the My Lai Massacre. Um, people are familiar with the My Lai Massacre in Vietnam. Basically, uh, you had a, a patrol out, uh, and they had gotten hit a lot recently. Um, several members of their unit killed, and they came across a village that was essentially all women and children and they just started slaughtering them, right? And that is, that is, you know, when you get into atrocities, military atrocities, that is moral disengagement gone awry, right? But when you have people who can, can do the job that they're meant to do, like, for example, in the military, under the laws of land warfare, then, you know, some degree of moral disengagement 
is necessary to continue that job. Does that make sense? Did I answer your question? He wrote back. All right. Thank you. Okay. Okay. So these pictures, here's, here's, here's the deal with these pictures. For one, that muscly guy, he's scary looking. So, so basically what we're getting ready to do is go over the different rationalizations in moral disengagement. And, and what I did is I pulled from two different research articles about moral disengagement. One of them was an article about uh, interviewing bodybuilders in the, in the UK. And, and what they did is basically interviewed them about their use of performance enhancing drugs and, and to see how they talk about it. And, and that's an important thing to, to recognize is that when we're trying to apply moral disengagement as, as identifying risk in others, we're looking at their language, right? Or if, if you have samples that are writing, again, that's written language. We're either looking for verbal or written language and applying that framework to try and identify how at risk they are for being somebody who's liable to morally disengage. And then of course that raises the probability of violence, of misbehavior, unethical behavior, uh, criminality, et cetera. The other article comes from Australia. And, and basically this is, so this is an Australian, Australian Roos football. Uh, they refer to them as footballers. Um, he's uh, Adam Goodies is a very, very famous, he's now retired, uh, Australian rules footballer. And this was interesting because he was involved in a situation. He was out there on the field, they called the pitch. He was out there on the field and there was a 13-year-old girl in the stands who yelled out and called him an ape. And she was ejected from the game and there was this huge blow up in Australia uh, because you know she was acute, she was ejected from the game for yelling racist comments to to this professional athlete you know while he was out there and they interviewed him and he says he was very hurt you know in, in hearing that and and so what they this research project looked at all the comments so right now everybody has an opinion in this day and age and they get to put it out there on the internet. Right? There's no screening. And so what these two, these Australian researchers did is that they looked at the news article and then they looked at all the comment feeds below and pulled out examples of moral disengagement in those comment feeds. So it's like an investigative tool, right? If you ever happen to do that, look on people's social media and start reading through what they're saying and you're like, hmm. So that's why I have those up there. <clears throat> Mostly because you need to see what Adam Goodies looks like, and then I just threw up a bodybuilder. <laughs> Equal time. <laughs> okay. Okay, so moral justification. So this is the first rationalization that we're going to address, is the portrayal of bad behavior as though it has a moral purpose, thereby making it appear acceptable, if not desirable. Now, I, I guess I should say real quick, the reason that I selected these is because they're very, very mild examples, right? And, and they come from people who do not have a diagnosed pathology. The reason that's important is because I don't want there to be any distance between you all and these statements. 
So in other words, if I said, yeah, this is a guy with schizophrenia and he was ordering pizza from a tree, um, then you're going to, then it's very easy to, for us to distance ourselves and say, well, that's what other people do. Well, you can look at these and say, yeah, I can imagine thinking you're saying things like these. Um, and, and the other reason that I selected very mild statements for these definitions for examples is because this is, this is what it looks like in very mild ways. So this is, this is that slippery slope. If we hear ourselves thinking along these lines, then we can sort of better identify when we're on that slippery slope to maybe cross a line when maybe we shouldn't. So first example, I need to learn from experience because I'm the man, people ask questions. I need to give people the right answers, the safe answers to help them progress uh, in their training, not to ruin them. So why is that moral justification? That's something someone might say before they do something questionable. I need to learn it is. experience. It is. And, and so, go to. so basically, <laughs> I need to learn. Yeah, I need to, how, can I, how can I teach cops about things if I don't engage in criminal behavior? <laughs> no, but so, so basically what this is saying, what this, the reason this is a moral justification is this person is saying, hey, I'm an experienced bodybuilder, and the younger guys come to me for answers. It's the ethical thing for me to do to use performance-enhancing drugs so that I kind of can know about them and can learn about them, and then, then I can give them the right answers, right? Because I'm useless. I'm, in fact, I'm unethical if I don't have the answers for these guys coming up, right? Um, and then this guy says specifically, so the ethics were skewed a bit towards putting food on the table rather than is it ethically right to take these and do these things. You notice two interesting things here. So the ethics, right? He's, he's recognizing there's an ethical dilemma here. But he's saying, if I don't use performance-enhancing drugs, I can't feed my family. So he's taking the moral high ground in this situation by saying, hey, I'm a responsible father. I love my children. Therefore, I'm going to take these drugs that are illegal so I can put food on the table, right? But the other thing is kind of interesting here is, as you see, he's not saying, and so therefore I use performance-enhancing drugs. He's not even referring to it. So that's a little bit of a distancing technique that people use. Okay. Uh, euphemistic labeling is the use of sanitizing language in order to lessen the emotional intensity cognitively disguise the harmfulness and or bestow respectable status onto the reality being referenced. So we're cleaning up, right? We're not saying uh, I murdered somebody. We're saying I whacked somebody, right? We're not saying uh, we, we dropped napalm on this village, we say, we conducted a, a sortie resulting in a surgical strike. Um, one of my favorite examples, I can believe this, one of my favorite examples of sanitizing language is not necessarily in terms of doing something wrong, but it certainly disguises the harmful or the impact of the situation. Uh, I was taking a course on a airplane 
it was called Air Airplane Accident Investigation, so Human Factors Investigator for Airplane Crashes. And, and uh, there was, a, was an F-18 who was doing an unauthorized air show off of Strip out in Alaska, and the pilot took off and overgeed the aircraft. So what that means is that he put too much force on the aircraft, took off too fast, he climbed too rapidly, he exceeded the performance standards, and it resulted in a rapid, unplanned disassembly of the aircraft. <laughs> so, yeah, I was like, oh, it was just a rapid, unplanned disassembly of the aircraft. That does not sound too bad, right? as opposed to a horrific explosion that destroyed, you know, multi-million dollar aircraft and killed the pilot. Uh, anyway, so he was actually doing the wrong thing at this moment. So, so this is an example. It's a good gem. This is a good gem. There's a lot of juice heads there. Right? Juice is, of course, referring to the performance of drugs. Uh, he plays for England, uh, the England rugby team. He's used more gear than I have. Of course, he has like more shoes or, you know, what? No, the gear is, of course, the euphemistic labeling for um, performance and drugs. Of course, you can see the cartoon, right? Collateral damage, that's one of the more famous uh, ones. Collateral damage, strikes, things like that that are used very frequently in the military. Uh, advantageous comparison. Uh, Advantageous comparison is a way of trying to make one behavior look good by comparing it with a much worse alternative. <laughs> uh, you know, you can have, and I would encourage you all, is this one of your go-tos? <laughs> so, you know, I would encourage you to kind of look, in the, look, look around you, you know, in the world, when I say look around you, you know, um, there's just a lot of examples of these moral disengagement processes. So, right, so right, we go to the druggie, right? The smackhead, the druggie, the crack user, you know, whoever. Look, they're they're out there robbing people and beating up old ladies and doing anything. I don't know any bodybuilders who who will go and rob a house or mug somebody to get their next shot of. That's actually short for some performance enhancing drug. <clears throat> right, so he's like, yeah, this is totally, you know, I'm not killing anybody, or, or, right, we're talking about bodybuilding, take a good look at cycling, look at those guys, don't look at me, those guys make bodybuilders look like fire boys, right, and uh, I like this cartoon too, <laughs> sort of, <laughs> anyways, not exactly right, but it's a good cartoon, gets, gets a point across, all right, Minimizing, ignoring, or misconstruing consequences. So this is a rationalization of an action to make the detrimental impact seem as small as possible or as inconsequential as possible. Uh, maybe our physicians can comment on, on these, right? People think to themselves, hold on a sec, he's not dropping dead. He's not hospitalized with extreme liver failure. Surely it can't be that bad. Right? Or here's the other one, right? It's used as a medicine, right? People give men in their 50s and 60s hormone replacement therapies. They might give them two milligrams of sustanin, right? Is that, it's, it's a, it's a, 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 a name. 
Yeah. They give AIDS victims DECA because it boosts their immune system. There are benefits. And so, and we, of course, we've heard about things like road, road rage and, and the things that happen to uh, men's reproductive organs when they use high amounts of these performance amps and drugs. I mean, it, it, it does, it causes cardiac problems, right? Potentially, I mean, performance amps really can kill you. It's serious stuff. Um, and so what you want to do in these circumstances is, is minimize these. I, I don't know if you guys have ever been on a call and, and said, hey, you know, this guy's not so bad. He just exceeds the standards of mischief. <laughs> we usually find it acceptable. <laughs> okay. All right, displacement of responsibility. Now, this is when you're able to minimize your role in the harm, typically in the harmful outcome or behavior through displacement of blame onto others. Okay. Usually, this is directed towards superiors or towards somebody who's in power who somehow gets to, gets to have a say in what it is that you're doing. And so if you can push it off on them, then it's not your fault, right? So I was following orders. I was only following orders. Um, that was actually, that was the number one, you look at uh, Nazi Germany and the Nuremberg trials, that was the number one defense. We were only following orders, only following orders. Um, the interesting thing is when you look at, there's a, there's a really good book on sociopaths in the corporate environment. It's called Snakes and Suits. And they look at a lot of, uh, they interview a lot of high-level executives. And, it, and what they found is no matter how high in the organization they go, the people, even major decision makers, are using this excuse. They're saying they feel helpless to you know, they're the, they're the head of HR or whatever. They feel helpless to pay their employees a little bit more, you know. So this is a really good way of doing bad things and shifting the responsibility somewhere else. So again, there's, you know, you can see there's a consensus across the whole bodybuilding society. You know, if you're not doing this stuff, you know, then you're out of it, right? Uh, if you're not, you know, using performance-enhancing drugs, um, then you're out of the running. Okay. Now this is a very similar one. This is called diffusion of responsibility. Um, just for your edification, that cartoon specifically uh, is related to what's called the bystander effect. So basically what, what the bystander effect lets us know is uh, if you're going to get hurt, hopefully there's like one, maybe two people around. And then you're likely to get help because if there's more, you're unlikely to get help. Right? Um, so this is an attempt to avoid personal blame by transferring it to a widespread audience, a widespread group of people who share the blame. Um, so example, it makes it's commonplace, right? Everybody's doing it. So it must be right. You know? <laughs> Not necessarily, you know, uh, or, Everybody in weightlifting or everybody who's running, they, they use these drugs, and that's how they perform at that level. And so if you want to be competitive, you have to do it too. Every, this is something that everybody else is doing. Okay. That is diffusion of responsibility. 
dehumanization, this gets used a lot. Um, and, and this is probably one of the most, especially if you look at our uh, political discourse, you see this continuously, right? So the process of depriving a person or group of people, and this is what underlies, you know, things like uh, racism, um, discrimination, uh, a group of people as lacking positive human qualities, such as mental capacity, emotional, social capacities, things like that. Um, so this, again, this is from this uh, Goody's research article, Unfortunately, our sportsmen today are too precious. So that's sort of uh, the Australian version of, of uh, I guess, the common word that's used right today is snowflake, right? So it comes with a lot of, of negative connotations. So they're, they're too precious, right? So that removes those, those human qualities from the person. Uh, they don't have uh, the mental strength or the emotional resilience or, or the social sophistication to understand when somebody's joking and when somebody's not joking, right? Uh, if Adam Goody's, this is more direct, chooses to grow a beard that makes him look like an ape, well, then what does he expect? So this one is uh, both dehumanization at first to him as an ape, and then there's also uh, something else thrown in there that is coming up next which is blaming the victim. That's a common term we hear a lot. It's referred to as attribution of blame. And that is to inappropriately and completely, usually, blame the victim for their circumstances into taking into account an objective evaluation of the situation. So, since when is ape a racist word? I guess we all need a racist word book. Adam Goodies is nothing but a big bully. So his fault, right? He's, he's too sensitive and he's just a big bully for getting upset with this, this you know, young lady for calling him an Unbelievable overreaction. I don't believe people should be racist, right? So there's an attempt to distance themselves from the whole race, race card. But on the other hand, surely Goodies should harden up a bit. Give me a break. All right, so this is not even worth dealing with. Is there some questions? Yeah. Oh, he rapidly disassembling his patrol uniform. <laughs> <laughs> for unlawful disobedience. Yeah. Um, okay. So blaming the victim that happens. Uh, heard. Okay, are there any questions? Because those are the eight specific rationalizations that allow people to morally disengage. So actually the next segment is on you guys, right? I'm gonna present you with some, well, are there any questions? What questions does the network have? Not I have one. Okay. This is Niels Rosenbaum. Unless you're covering this in the next lecture, you mentioned that just learning about this can help people. For people that run the whole gamut from they want to be more insightful and, and change to those who don't want to, what interventions work? 
So in terms of just allowing people, just letting people know about the process of moral disengagement, then what, what is required is self-study, essentially. So, and if you're gonna use the, the process of moral disengagement for self-improvement, and if you're gonna use it as potentially as a, a risk identification tool or investigative tool, then what you have to do is take those elements of moral disengagement and study them. And so there's good ways of doing that. Uh, one, I mean, like you can look on the internet and, and stuff like that. There's a lot of websites that you can see um, uh, a lot of this stuff taking place in the comment boards, things like that. Uh, you can also study um, any of the writings of uh, like some you know, murders of produced manifestos. Uh, you can do those, and we're gonna look at some of that. Um, that's basically the training is is to learn about it and then apply it. What about on other people who clearly are morally disengaged and want to bring them back to reality? If you want to bring them back to if, if so, if you're talking about somebody who is who is clearly morally disengaged, then it, it just becomes a process of bolstering their ability to recognize that and bolstering their commitment to an ethical or moral path. Right? So you essentially explain to them the error of their ways. Now, of course, they have to be open to that, yeah. right? It's just like the old, you know, how many psychologists does it take to change a light bulb? You, you know, there's a lot of answers. <laughs> <laughs> it only takes one, but they really need one to change. The light bulb has one to change. So, I mean, it's the same same deal, um, is, is that, you know, you you confront people and you have these conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Matt, we're going to talk about Well, I have a follow-up question. <laughs> to this yeah, yeah, yeah. So, this is Matt Tenth APD. So with what uh, Niels is saying, can you do it on a large scale like to society? So like here in Albuquerque, we've had some uh, um, outbursts and crimes against people experiencing homelessness. Uh -huh. A lot of times when they talk about people that are homeless, it's dehumanized. Mm -hmm. So is there a way to to do that as a mass or study, like how does a culture or society change? There, I mean, there, so when, if you start trying to apply the intervention in larger and larger groups, it becomes harder and harder to apply. You can certainly have an influence. So, so you know, one of the things that you would wanna do is, is, Make some PSAs where uh, not the service aids. Yeah, I was like, okay. Yeah, yeah. We'll make Take your PSAs, PSAs you know, <laughs> have them run around. Um, no, but you know, I mean, so essentially, what you want to do is look at what what is the what is the method. So uh, people do talk about you know homeless people as you know in very dehumanizing terms. Just referring referring to them like so. For a good example is oh. Uh, schizophrenics, you know, referring to people with a mental illness as their illness. That in and of itself is dehumanizing. And so we, you know, we get wound up about, you know, political correctness and things like that. But some of these, the, some of the ways we phrase things have a purpose. So rehumanizing a person who is homeless would be one way of reducing that. 
Now, the, the, here's the problem at, at, in terms of applying this at, at larger and larger group levels. We listen to people who we believe are like us. We, we want to under, we, so, so quickly, if you start trying to humanize people at a societal level, let's say, at the level of Albuquerque, right? You have your PSAs running around doing PSAs about the human qualities of, of homeless people. Well, you're going to get, you're going to come up with a group of folks who are listening and then somebody in that group who's even more extreme in their views is going to start presenting arguments about why homeless people should be treated horribly. And, and that person is going to become more influential in the group than, than the one individual who's trying to present the message. And so this is how these, that's how we have, you know, red states, blue states, this, and, and how things harden is because we are motivated to maintain our separate camps. Because we're motivated to kind of, and, you know, and it comes from an honest place. We're pretty motivated to feel good about ourselves, right? And if somebody is presenting us with information that suggests that maybe we're not as good as we think we are, and maybe we could improve our behavior. And then somebody else who holds the view we used to hold pops up and goes, wait a minute, here's all the reasons why your old behavior was the better behavior. Then you're like, I am free and easy, you know, and it takes way less effort. It takes way less effort for me to adopt my old behavior and stick with it regardless of what it does to society than it does to adopt a new behavior. So it can backfire. It can backfire. It can actually harden people's resolve. So we can. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. Dr. McCoy, and I'm psychiatry. I have a question kind of along with that. Okay. Um, and you're talking about like doing self-study by looking at mm -hmm. internet commentary. Is there any sort of uh, study to see if you can make change through the internet commentary? So like for instance, next door, uh, in this area, particularly oh. with what Matt is talking about, we'll have, I've noticed a number of comments about homeless people that where people, there, there's a huge mix of comments on there. Some are very extreme and uh -huh. some are, seem like they're more in that, like maybe they could, maybe they could have their eyes opened a little bit to their moral disengagement, making statements like, I don't have a problem with homeless people, but I don't want them anywhere near me. Right. <laughs> like that there's a, there's an in there to make those changes. Yeah. Is there any kind of. Yeah. I mean, you know, I mean, so one of the things, especially one of the things about, you know, a social network, like social networks, when we're talking about social networking sites, like neighbor, neighborhood, Mr. Rogers neighborhood. <laughs> um, but you know, one of the things about that is, is that people, people are less connected to each other, right? Because they're literally just a grouping of neighbors and they don't really know each other. So the thing is, is that they don't know, they can't judge how much they are alike, right? So if me and Matt are sitting here typing away on our little opinions and he lives three houses down and Matt says, oh, homeless people are the worst, you know, 
And I look at that, I don't know enough about him to know if he's like me enough for me to like his comment. Mm-hmm. And, and so it sort of becomes an issue of, I mean, it'd be tricky, but yeah, you could influence it by interjecting humanizing qualities or positive stories, you know, about uh, homeless individuals. And, and, you know, you may build a critical mass uh, and, and start getting things going more positively. Of course, you may also have somebody that's, that's powerful in the group who starts, and then that's when you want to back off, back out. Because it's because it's not going in a good direction. You're making me feel better about not trying to. <laughs> <laughs> just interesting what you're saying because if anyone here is in law enforcement, if you guys are in any law enforcement groups, um, like on Facebook, and you see someone start typing about yeah. some like social issues, and one person tries to take a more liberal stance of like maybe we should consider people's rights. Mm-hmm. I mean, it is just hammered. Possibly, no, and it happens in the police department. I mean, if you stand up for people's rights or you have a different opinion, you're not a cop anymore. Less well, of a cop on that. Kind and, of and and that's and that's and that's true, right? And and you see that a lot. Now, I, I will say this much. Fortunately, you know, in when you look at the when you look at the law enforcement community or you look at the military community, basically first responders in, in general. These are, these are groups of people who have a very strong commitment to the rule of law and to uh, morally and ethically upright behavior, right, as, as, as our society defines it. And so what that, what that means is that they are predisposed to be hardened against moral disengagement. So you will, you will absolutely see people saying pretty terrible things. And, and it's really, I mean, it may be expressing an opinion or blowing off steam, but it doesn't necessarily convert into bad behavior, right? Now, so if you see it in the law enforcement context, then you need to be closer to the person to be able to observe what their actual behavior is like. Right, because they may say some crazy stuff on, on online social media forum, but then you get them out there in the field, and and they're by the book, and they're friendly to the citizens, and, and things of that nature. And so it looks like this sort of Jekyll and Hyde thing, you know. But people who have less of a commitment, let's say they have greater moral flexibility, or they're they're predisposed towards disengaging, then that behavior is going to start translating. Right. And so especially in terms of this risk analysis, if you're looking at the general civilian population or if, for instance, in pre-employments, if I'm looking at somebody who is not yet a police officer, right, they're, they're just a cadet, they're aiming in the right direction, but they have not yet been brought into the community. They don't have all those safeguards uh, sort of baked in to them through experience and peers and things like that. And so if they're already talking, saying things like that, then I'm gonna, I'm like, whoa. You know, that that's potentially very problematic. Is that, is that, yeah, that doesn't make sense. Okay. Um, all right. Okay, so now it's now it's on you guys, right? Um, all right. Does it, any of you guys recommend, recommend, would, would any of you recommend these people as friends? <laughs> <laughs> Anyone recognize these people? 
Okay. Online, online. Is, is that box blocking people? Uh, not, not for the other. Okay. Okay. So there's probably, and this is my own bias, probably a good reason that they're not super recognizable. So these are all uh, spree killers who wrote manifestos who also did not have diagnosed mental disorders. <laughs> and, I, and I chose these, this group of people for a very specific reason. One, because they don't have mental disorders, so you can't say, oh, it's a mental disorder that did it, right? And two, they wrote manifestos, so we can look at their written language. We can see the moral disengagement in, in their language. Um, and, and that's actually not an easy thing to do. But you, you read some of these man manifestos that people have produced, and it's wow. All right. All right. So, this is who those folks are. Um, you got Jared Amanda Miller, they're extreme anti government. Uh, and so, does this, does this ring a bell? Do, do you guys know about this now? 2014, shot up uh, northern Las Vegas. Somebody. Um, now, the, the next guy, I do make uh, some more use because his he has actually a sort of a manifesto that is several pages long. I can't, maybe like 97 pages long. So sent it to Nils. He was very interested. Uh, he was like, that guy's got a game better than this guy. <laughs> yeah. So, what's um, the second guy, the Elliot guy? Didn't he do a bunch of online videos too? Yes, he did. Like commentary? Yes, he did, actually. And that was his very difference. Yeah, he's your buddy. Uh, that, so that was, a, that was the last thing he did, actually, the very last thing he did before he started killing. And, and he's actually, you know, like, some of, like several of these uh, spree killers who, who wrote manifestos, you know, they, they gain kind of a heroic status in their, in their communities. Um, and so there's actually, I don't know, there's recommendations that the media not publish these things anymore uh, because they, they draw quite a... Crowd. Anyways, he's a hero among some in the incel community. I don't know if you guys are familiar. Some people aren't familiar with that one. It's not like a giant community. Bridget, you are? I think so. You are a member? <laughs> <laughs> Actually, it was started by a female. Really? Yeah. It, 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 it spun out of control. She, she no longer advocates. Because I don't know. Yeah. Oh, okay, yeah. So, in, enforced celibacy, that's what incel is. And so, these are basically uh, a bunch of guys who um, blame women for their, for their lack of sexual experience. They believe that they, like, should be able and can take any women that they Yes, yeah. Uh, and, and so, it's pretty interesting stuff. And then, of course, Jim David uh, Atkinson... Uh, he had uh, extreme partisan views. Uh, yeah. All right. Okay. So, so here's what we're going to do, right? I have pulled out some elements of these manifestos 
and I've listed the eight processes or the eight rationalization classes of moral disengagement. And I, I want you all to, to tell me uh, what you see. So this is the first, first one. Go ahead and read that first one and let me know what you think. What's in there? Yeah, involuntary celibacy. That's what incel stands for. Somebody, I just see involuntarily celibate with a question mark. <laughs> Is the first one moral justification? Well, t t tell us about that. What do you see? Uh, just we can hope for peace. We must, however, prepare for war. So, um, kind of just preparing for some, some kind of battle so you're just morally justifying it and yes you're right know how else to... <laughs> absolutely anyone else see anything no that's that's great yeah so freedom and justice you know we're preparing for war what happened why is what what did this person do he shot up police officers and and so it's against the law, as far as I know, even in Las Vegas. <laughs> um, what else? Do you see anything else there? There's there's another one there that's a little bit a little bit subtle. And would you say it's dehumanizing? Attribution. Yes. Dehumanizing. All right, because he uses the term enemy. Right. He's not saying uh, you know, these, you know, certified public servants are bringing me down. And they're the enemy, and the enemy has a lot of negative connotations, right? That are not. Okay. Uh, to stop this oppression, what about the next one? Who said that? Colin Kaepernick? <laughs> Colin Kaepernick. Did you say that? Colin Kaepernick. <laughs> no, no, no. These are all these first people that I. He might say that. I, I, you, you have to check his social media feed. <laughs> so all of them, but I, I would think attribution of blame is their fault. They're trying to make us into slaves. Yes. Yes. Yeah, uh, that's certainly that. Right. Exactly. They are trying to dehumanize us. Right. To stop this oppression. May the best men of our beloved nation write a lot of patriotic stuff, fighting tyranny. So, so there's also some of that uh, dehumanization. They're tyrants, you know. We, right? He uses the term "we," so he's he's diffusion of responsibility, and then some of that displacement of responsibility. They're making us slaves. We, as free men, have to fight against this tyranny. Um, okay. Uh, all right, let's go on to the next one. Okay. Ah. That seems sick. <laughs> so that's, really, so that's a really interesting, that's a really interesting point, you know, is, is, is I, like I said, early, early on, 
um, the, these normal thought processes can become so distorted that they appear pathological. And we have a psychiatrist looking at this and saying, that looks psychotic. And indeed, and, and he's the, he, Elliot is, is the guy who comes closest. There's a suspicion that he may have been, uh, had some Asperger's going on, which, which made it very difficult for him to, to interact you know, appropriately with, with other people, and, and it gave him some kind of odd mannerisms. But when we look at something like Asperger's, we really usually don't think of that as a severe pathology. I mean, of course, the autism spectrum is, can be quite severe, uh, but at the, the Asperger's level, um, it really isn't. But it definitely doesn't lead to psychosis, right? And, and so this, so what do, what do you guys see here? I see some, okay, advantageous comparison. Yeah. So there's also, anybody see uh, euphemistic labeling in here? It is exacting my retribution. Yes. My orchestration of the day of retribution. Right, what, is, what is that? I mean, the day of retribution, he's talking about going out and, and shooting innocent civilians indiscriminately. Okay. What about attribution of blame? Because they're not giving me? Yes. So then I must do this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, blaming that is blaming the victim. It's kind of a combination of blaming the victim and displacement of responsibility. Hey, you know, women are making me do this. It's you know because uh, sexuality and their power over it, their control over it. You know? So it's interesting because in his mind, the whole sexual act becomes the downfall of society. It's the reason that society is as, as horrible as it is. Um, and, and men, or I'm sorry, women are the ones that control that. And so therefore, women are evil. I don't think I, I don't think I have it on this, but in part of his manifesto, he says that basically we, we need to slaughter all the women and but we need to leave a few left over for breeding purposes and so uh but they they should be tightly controlled and access to them should be tightly controlled uh so that men don't get to learn about sexuality because they don't have access to women to have sex because they you know um i mean it's very biblical isn't it right it's, you know the whole adam and eve you know, it's like every Dan Brown novel. Dan Brown novel. But, you know, I mean, basically, so he's saying the human race will evolve. Um, so there's a lot, a lot of stuff in here. This is the kind of easy stuff. Men will grow up healthy. So this is a lot of, again, attribution of blame. Um, there's advantageous comparison is in there, right? If it weren't for, you know, the depravity of sexuality, then we would have a wonderful ideal world. Um, so lots of stuff. 
Uh, this is Atkinson. No, this is Elias Rogers. He, he just had so much stuff. He produced, you know, legitimately, he produced a lot more. Rambo? I didn't start this one. <laughs> I, I thought I'd recognize him that stuff too. He, you know, I mean, uh, you know, young man makes use of popular culture. So this is, again, this is displacement of responsibility pretty much big time. Humanity struck at me first by condemning me to experience so much suffering. I didn't want to do this. So, you know, it's because it's interesting. You look at it, and, I mean, he's recognizing. You can see the struggle. It's very transparent. He's recognizing that he's about to engage in a pretty horrific act, you know, and, and, and he doesn't fundamentally see him this way, himself this way. And, and so that's where you, you can really see people don't want to see themselves in a negative light. You know, I mean, I mean, not, you know, maybe some people do, but they're definitely in the minority. You know, people like to be able to maintain a, a, a good view of themselves. I, I didn't want to, but, but they forced me to do it. They struck first. I'm just fighting back. That's all I'm doing. And I will punish everyone, every single person. Okay. All right, this is Atkinson. Wondering why, right? So right up front, committed this. What is that? It is definitely euphemistic labeling. But what else is it? What are the connotations of patriotic act? Moral justification. Moral justification. So this is one of those examples where you're not only looking at the person is, is morally justifying it as being okay, it, it actually becomes a moral imperative, right? If you're a true patriot, then you would absolutely agree with me and we should go into, in, into the universalist Unitarian church and shoot them up. That's what we should do. It's, it's imperative. Um, again, you got the displacement. I guess they just expect me, right? Displacement of responsibility. I guess they just expect me to age gracefully and go into poverty. So basically, uh, if you're not familiar with this case, uh, what happened is, is he was, I believe, I want to say he was 57, 50, he was in his mid-late 50s, and, and he had had a long string of kind of low-level, sort of entry-level jobs, just working jobs to earn money, not like a career. And so he was in his late 50s, and he became unemployed, and he could not get a job. You know, I mean, it is legitimately, for somebody of his age, with that kind of a background, you're not exactly, you know, you don't got human resources knocking down your door, right? And, and so he was experiencing extreme financial distress and and of course that sense of meaning and that sense of identity of himself as a man and ability to stand on his own two feet and be his, his own provider all that you know i mean a lot of stuff going on there back in the background again those those uh um contextual variables 
that, that really, really drive, you know, kind of us in particular directions, drive our behavior. Um, and then, and then what else is there? Okay, we got dehumanization. Interestingly, right? He uses uh, Democrats as that is a label, as a dehumanizing label um, in his language, right? You can look at how, how he uses it. Um, and so, and you know, we see that a lot. You know, people of, of different belief systems, uh, whether they be religious beliefs or political beliefs, um, lots of different uh, backgrounds uh, use the other guy's um, personal, how they identify as a dehumanizing label, right? And, and they link it to a lot of negative connotations. So here you can see that that linkage, right? Is basically, they're the terrorists' greatest assets. They're the greatest allies here in America. Uh, right. Engage Yes, yes, good catch. Engage them, all right. Okay, and I know this is right. The you know clearly this is a this is right, um, and and I I'm, I should say that over this over the course of history, the preponderance of extremist groups in America tends to shift right or left. Currently, we're in a right leaning preponderance of of extremist groups in the 60s and 70s we were in a preponderance of left-leaning extremist groups so you think of the the weathermen right is it the, the but and and black panthers and so etc there was in the 60s there was a lot of left-leaning so it's not you know it, it's i'm trying to pull from what's happening now recently Anything? The only way we can rid ourselves of this evil is to kill them in the streets. All right, so again, you see that uh, he's being very direct. You know, this is kind of one of the interesting things. Is you see, you know, not everybody all the time is going to use all the rationalizations. Some people will absolutely be able to confront what it is that they're doing in a very direct manner, you know? This one has a new one, the minimizing or ignoring the consequences. Mm -hmm. Oh, there are millions of them. Right, yeah. And so, uh, so yeah, so he's very directly saying, yeah, we're gonna kill him. But, of course, he's already converted this act into a moral imperative. And what, you know, I mean, what, what should you do with evil? If it's otherwise unstoppable, kill it. That's what we do. So, okay. No. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> okay. Uh, questions. I'm going to flip forward a little bit. So, uh, at the end of this, I added some readings, suggested readings. This first page is, is readings. I think I mentioned these. Um, Bandura, of course, he's the man uh, in terms of moral disengagement. Uh, he came up with the theory. Uh, I really like this Doris. He's actually a philosopher, um, but he writes at length about uh, the contextual aspects of behavior. 
from both a philosophical and psychological standpoint. It's really good. The Lucifer effect. Yeah, the Lucifer effect. That's a that's a good one. That's the Stanford Prison Study. And then a really good read too is is the social. And of course, like I mentioned last time, it's not like beach reading, like, you know. <laughs> but I mean, it's very informative, the, the informative reading. Um, oh, is that a question up there? Is the abandonment of euphemistic phrase in favor of more direct language an indicator of impending violence or just coincidental? Uh, I, I would say it's, just, it's more coincidental. It, it, so it's sort of like, uh, sort of like I was saying earlier, is that not everybody is going to use all eight rationalization possibilities, and so in a way, the more types of rationalizations you see somebody using, the more that is moving them towards violence, criminality, unethical behavior. Because if you think about if you think about an eight-legged chair, <laughs> right? You think about an eight-legged chair, with every leg you knock away, it becomes increasingly likely that thing is going to become less stable, okay? But, um, but not everybody uses all of them all the time or all at once. And so, if, like I said, especially when you're talking about people, uh, for example, um, uh, sovereign citizen types, um, or, or, you know, virulently anti-government types, they view what they're doing as constitutionally justified, as patriotically justified, and so there, it, there doesn't need to be any distancing from the act of violence. There doesn't need to be. Or, or there doesn't even really need to be uh, any distancing from criminal acts because they simply do not see them as criminal acts. They're just not. So if I make my own license plate, my own driver's license, and you pull me over and I give it to you, here you go. Here's my ID. It's, it's simply not a criminal act. And then, of course, when you try and do something about it, they're like, well, what authority do you have? This is totally, this is okay. This is justified by the original portion of the Constitution of the United States. Um, and then uh, research articles, these are the research articles. Uh, oh, good, I'm glad I had it. So if you guys remember from the last time, the J-shaped curve of conforming behavior. So, so this, is a, this is a good way, and it's sort of like I was talking about the eight-legged chair. <laughs> I've never seen an eight-legged chair. <laughs> Theoretically, a little thought experiment here. Um, if you think about that J-shaped curve, when you see people using, so the J-shaped curve says the vast majority of people are going to conform to societal rules, and then, and then very low, it'll sharply turn away, and you'll get increasingly few people deviating further and further from societal norms. When you're looking at when you're looking at these things, like you, we looked at those manifestos, and they deviated quite significantly from what you hear in normal everyday conversation. Hopefully, if you're having those conversations <laughs> every day, that's a different that's a different conversation. So, so basically, that's sort of like the the risk assessment part of it is 
is in, in, the, in the self-assessment, how many rationalizations are you engaging in in order to do this thing that you kind of like to do but know you shouldn't, right? What are you seeing on, in somebody's online behavior? As you're interacting with somebody and they're talking to you, how frequently are they using these types of moral disengagement processes you know, with a great degree of frequency? And how distorted is their view of things? Yes. Are there other characteristics that go along with the ability to morally disengage? Traits that come together? Like associated traits? Yeah. I don't, I don't know of any research that would suggest there is. There is a moral disengagement scale that you can use to, to measure that. I mean, just rationally thinking, you know, if, if the traits that go along with it, you would be seeing more unethical behavior. If you're, if you're able to look at their behavior, that's where I would look. And so somebody who engages in a lot of it. Now, there's a, one caveat to that. Right. So earlier I had said moral disengagement is is a moderator in unethical and criminal behavior. That means that between the person and the behavior, it sits in between and allows for the behavior to occur. If you're looking at sociopaths, there's not a moderator. It's straight to the criminal behavior. <laughs> so. Um, so yeah, so you can usually look at, at somebody's behavior and see how many things they're doing wrong, and that could give you an estimate. And I just want to let everyone know that the PowerPoint, if you guys would like the actual references so that you guys can get them easier, please just send Jen or myself an email and we can get those out to you on that. Also, please check in the chat feature because Jen put out a link to the survey. She did not, and I completely lied on that. Please check your emails for a link to this week's survey. And thank you, Dr. Pilgrim, for your time. Thank yeah. you. Thank and you we'll see you guys next week.